that's a classic one I see. It's like, oh, we're fighting all the time. It's like, "Hmm, why are you fighting all the time? Are you fighting all the time? Because you're not speaking up for your feelings and your needs and you're doing, you know, you're expressing it through your avoidant, you know, deactivating strategies and you're withdrawing. another episode of Dear Men. This one is very relevant and I've been waiting to do this one for a while. So I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Laura Casper back to the podcast. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. I am excited about this because this is something that I've seen come up a lot. Um, I've seen it in my guy friends and in some of my clients. And it's the question of what do you do when you're not sure she's the one, when you kind of feel ambivalent about the relationship, right? So it's not like so bad that you know that it's clear you have to move on, but it's also not like you know, she's everything I've ever wanted and I'm as happy as I can be. And it's like the movies, right? So it's that spot where you're like, I'm not really sure about this. And I think there's a lot out there about like, you should be absolutely sure that this partner is like the best fit for you for the rest of your life. And there's also a lot out there about like relationships or work, blah, blah, blah. So I think that there's more going on in this scenario. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. So, um, This is also, just so you guys know, um, this episode is going to be about attachment styles. And we did another episode specifically around attachment styles, uh, the number of which I'm forgetting right now. But if you scroll through and you find that one, that is also going to be, there's there's more there if you want even more about attachment styles. But um, Laura, I thought we could just start with sort of a review of, of what are the attachment styles and how do they show up in relationships. Sure. Um, So, you know, the three main attachment styles that I talk about, there's two that are predominantly sort of insecure, kind of less secure, and then there's a secure attachment style. And so the less secure attachment styles tend to be sort of avoidant or anxious. And people either have a sort of a predominant style or, you know, one particular piece of that comes out more depending on who their partner is. So, you know, somebody can be kind of anxious avoidant or maybe predominantly avoidant or predominantly anxious. And a lot of it depends on kind of who the, what the attachment style is of their partner. And do you want me to say more about those things specifically? Yeah. I'd love to hear what, what is anxious avoidant or sorry, what is anxious attachment? What is avoidant attachment? And then anxious avoidant. Absolutely. So, so attachment styles overall are you know the ways that we kind of organize our model for relationships so when you know growing up we sort of learn how to be in relationship with loved ones from our parents from you know other caregivers just people who were in our significant people in our lives and and through those relationships we learned whether we can like depend on others for care and 
um, to get our needs met. We learned how people are responsive to us and our feelings and expressing of feelings and vulnerability. And so, you know, when you grow up with a secure attachment, you were responded to when you had needs growing up. You, your feelings were validated and reassured, and you have a sense you you know you have a sense of your lovability that you're you know you're you're worthy and deserving of love and people's attention, and you know you you feel free to sort of express those needs and you feel kind of confident and secure in a relationship. When you don't have that kind of environment growing up, when you know needs were less than ideally met. Uh, when there was significant trauma, when there was neglect, you know, really anything that kind of disrupts that that maternal, and it doesn't need to be from mom, but that sort of maternal expression of care and and availability, then we come out with a more insecure sense. And, you know, sometimes that can come out as a real fear of loss, you know, a fear that, that an attachment, a person who's there for you is going to go away. And that tends to be, show up as more anxious behaviors. You know, um, uh, you get really scared somebody's going to leave or you get really hypervigilant about, you know, their withdrawals. Um, or it comes out as avoidant behavior. Like, you're, you know, you sort of withdraw when things are... Um, when things are tense or there's stress in the relationship and, and that tends to be a fear that you're going to get kind of engulfed or trapped or, you know, smothered in the relationship. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes those fears come because that's what happened. You know, the anxious person probably had a parent who was more withdrawn, who, you know, would get mad and leave and they would just kind of be left feeling that sort of abandonment. And maybe the, you know, the avoidant person, this is not, always true, but it's often true. You know, the avoidant person might have had a more intrusive parent, somebody who was like really trying to kind of push and, and made them feel smothered and trapped. And so the best way they could do to manage closeness was to sort of pull back. So, you know, the, the insecure strategies, they're a way of, of regulating intimacy and closeness because it's scary for those people versus the secure person. They're not scared. Okay. So let's bring this into like, what would be an example in, let's say that there's a man and woman and they've been dating for a few years and he is like, what happens that, what would his experience be if he was more avoidantly attached? Like if there was a conflict, you know, like he was late mm-hmm. and she was kind of mad at him because he was late. What would, mm-hmm. what would happen? I mean, you know, uh, if he was late and she was mad at him, she would, you know, her anxiety, she would probably express, you know, she'd, she'd have a big expression of feelings. She'd be upset. She'd probably get critical or kind of blaming. I mean, it, particularly if she's anxious and, and not secure, right. And not able to sort of talk about maybe some of the fears or the vulnerability that's under that, but, but she might get kind of critical and blaming of him and he, you know, he'd likely shut down, um, you know, he'd start to sort of pull back. He'd start to kind of wonder like, oh gosh, is this really the right person for me? Um, uh, you know, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not really sure about this. So he'd sort of, he'd probably start thinking she was being unreasonable, um, you know, too emotional, too needy, those, that kind of, you know, criticism of her in his mind. Um, okay. And what so- would that scenario look like with two, with two people with secure attachment? Mm, yeah, with secure attachment, um, you know, there'd be a lot of 
there'd be a lot of um, giving the benefit of the doubt, you know, kind of assuming that the person was late for some very good reason and they probably just didn't, you know, communicate what was going on. And, you know, so you'd sort of start with this really sense like this was not some sign that you don't love me. That, that's going to be the going in position of a secure person. You know, that the lateness doesn't have anything to do with whether they love them or not or their commitment to the relationship, that it is oh, something must have happened, you know, and, and, and they might have some feelings about lateness, you know, but they would sort of express them more as like, you know, this is a difference between us, perhaps that, you know, I'm somebody who likes to be more on time and maybe you're somebody who's a little later. And so being with you, I need to get to know this about you. It, it would not be, uh, you know, immediately a sign of, insecurity in the relationship. And then if she, if she was like, Oh babe, you're late. Like I, I was worried you weren't going to come or I got kind of scared that you weren't going to come. She would maybe be more expressive about the vulnerability or the need instead of God, you're always late. Why are you always late? Like you knew this would piss me off and you did it just to hurt me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And she, she, you know, she, and she would just talk about herself, right. And just like, Oh, you know, like she might talk about, um, growing up kind of feeling like people weren't there and like that started to get sort of stirred up for her, but she knows that he loves her. Like she'd be able to sort of in, in her expression, you know, be self-soothing and acknowledging that, you know, he's not doing anything necessarily wrong that she's stirred up in her feelings. And then if he has secure attachment, he's going to be able to meet that and be like, I'm so sorry. I was late. I was stuck. You know, I know that this is a trigger for you and I'm, I'm here now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He'd be very reassuring. He'd be able to just listen to her and he, you know, he'd be compassionate with her for her history and sort of what's up for her. But, but, and, you know, and, and he would apologize for his lateness, but not, he wouldn't sort of go to some place that like, oh my gosh, he's like a terrible person and has done something so wrong. Okay. Great. All right. So we have some context for the background here. Um, Most, I would say most of the people, most of my clients have some kind of insecure attachment. So either Mm -hmm. anxious avoidant or anxious avoidant, which Mm -hmm. a combination of both of them. And um, for those of you listening who many of you listening will have already heard about attachment and you might've even identified and a, a lot of people have anxious avoidant attachment, at least in my experience, it seems like a pretty um, predominant uh, form. And I just want to touch on what that looks like in relationship because um, Laura, you were saying before we started that a lot of times, if you have anxious avoidant attachment, when you're in a relationship with someone who is showing up as more, more avoidant, then you become more anxious and vice versa. Right. So if you've had the experience of like, well, sometimes with certain people, I'm like this. And with other times I'm like this, this is a thing. This does happen. It's almost like two magnets. Like you swing to the opposite end when your partner is showing up a certain way. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, the core is what's core is the same, which is there's, there's some fear and, and, you know, vulnerability about being close like it's just a, you know, being close and being loved and believing, you know, in one's lovability, like that's at the core of insecure attachment. And then how it's going to play out is wholly dependent on the partner that you're with. So if you're with a secure partner and you've got more insecure traits, 
they're, they're probably going to come out a little bit less. And when they do come out, their partner is going to be so able to just like hear and hold them. But if, if you're somebody who, um, when, when, you know, when somebody's withdrawing, if you're insecure, you're likely going to start feeling some of those, those anxious behaviors. Like they're just going to start to come out. You're going to be, you know, checking and, and focusing on, you know, like that sort of hypervigilance is going to come out and vice versa. Like if you've got somebody who's more anxious with you, you're going to like pull back, you know, you're going to get, get scared. Yeah. It's like a dance. It's, it's like a, a dance. dance. Yeah. So one person's yeah. backing up, the other person's going towards them and vice versa. Yeah. Okay. So we are doing this episode specifically to talk about solutions because what we've noticed is a lot of the stuff around attachment uh, has to do with the problem, like really describing avoidant attachment and really describing anxious attachment, but not so much on like, okay, how do you shift from that into secure attachment? So that's really the focus of today's episode is how do you shift this pattern? How do you shift this energy so that you can become securely attached? Because that's really what we're going for. That's really what we want. And it's really where relationships tend to thrive. Um, so really, I mean, what we're, so I'm, I'm a coach and Laura is a psychologist, a therapist, but what we decided we wanted to help with was sort of like, what are some ways? Cause I was asking, I was asking you, Laura, like, like, what do you, what do you, how do you work with people around this? Like if you have clients that show up as avoidantly attached, you know, what are you working on with them in therapy? But what we're going to be going over is sort of like, what helps, what are mm -hmm. things that you can do as a person, even if you're not in therapy or have, or have a coach or something like that, you know, what are things that help kind of move you towards secure attachment? So we're just going to go through a couple of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, what I tell people, you know, if you're not going to do therapy, which is one of the best ways to shift an attachment style is, you know, you're going to need to do some of the things that we do in therapy. And so, you know, one of the first things that we do in therapy is we help you become more self-aware. Right. And so, so the first thing really is figuring out, you know, are you, what is your attachment style? And you know, maybe you're listening to this podcast because you've already identified that you're, you know, you've got some sort of insecure attachment style. But that's my that's my first recommendation is, you know, take a test and and really figure it out. I, I and I have a website for a really great online uh, attachment interview, sort of attachment survey that you can take. That's like it's it's really solid. So I'm going to give that to Melanie, and, and that'll be in her podcast notes. Um, a next one is, you know, the is is part of this awareness. So if you know you're avoidant, to start to really know what are your de-escalating behaviors. So, so when you're avoidantly attached, you engage in behaviors to de-escalate intimacy, to get you know, to get farther away, to not be close. And if you're an anxiously attached person, you know, you do things to, you know, to, to reestablish closeness. And so right now I'm going to focus on the, you know, the avoidant um, strategies, but like know what yours are. So, um, you know, some of them include, you know, saying you're not ready to be in a relationship, but, but stay in the relationship anyway. I mean, that, that's the, you know, the topic that we sort of started with. Um, you know, people who I, I see this a ton of idealizing an old ex, somebody who, you know, they just remember and they had from a long time ago. And, um, it's, it's, uh, it's really common. Um, 
you know, not being able to say, I love you, even though the other person wants that. And you, you know, you, you do have some strong feelings, um, maybe checking out just kind of mentally when your partner is talking, um, keeping secrets or being vague with your, with your person, your partner are are foggy. Um, and then smoke, focusing on small imperfections. You know, one of the things that Melanie mentioned earlier was, you know, when you're sort of ambivalent, it's like figuring out like what's right or, you know, relationships or work and, and, but, uh, avoidant deactivating strategy is really to like, just like nitpick. Um, you know, and those are obviously, you know, how she said some word or what she's wearing today or anything like that is not what make or makes or breaks a relationship. But, but so the first, really knowing like, what do you do? Because to figure out those, those are like your tells. It's like, oh, when I'm starting to do that, that's a sign to me that my attachment system is activated and I am feeling some need to pull away from closeness. So that's why I'm suggesting people really get clear with themselves what their strategies are so they can start to get even more intimate with what is going on. It's like, okay, I just started picking on this thing about her. What's going on for me? Like, why am I wanting to pull away by being critical of her in this moment in my own mind? Um, so that that's that's... Uh, uh, that's something we would do in therapy. And so it's something that you can do on your own to really um, get clear for yourself. Uh, This is a great, this is a great point about um, the nitpicking or the criticism stuff, because I think part of the, part of the problem with the not being conscious of it is that you, you might really believe this is a thing. So for example, Mm -hmm. I have a Mm -hmm. friend and she was, you know, relating with this guy and he kept being like, well, you're not adventurous enough for me. You're not adventurous Mm -hmm. enough for me. And it was sort of like, it didn't actually make sense. If that makes sense. Like it was like, that doesn't really like, there are a lot of couples where one person, you know, likes to do outdoorsy stuff and the other person doesn't. And it's very manageable. You can manage this. Right. And what I think was really happening was like, he was scared. Like he was scared of, of that relationship becoming something more serious, but what, but he wasn't conscious of that. What he was aware of was like, well, she's not adventurous enough for me. So it's like his mind came up with something to help distance himself because he was scared. And that's really what I want to highlight here is like, especially for avoidant attachment, it's usually like, I'm scared of being trapped. I'm scared of being, um, engulfed or somehow like taken over. Right. Yes. Yes. And I can relate to this because I would say that my style is like anxious avoidant, but when I'm uh, playing an avoidant pattern or whatever, it's because I'm afraid, like, I'm afraid that if I commit to this person, I will be like, like, um, what's the word? Like I'll do something wrong and then they'll punish me. Right. That, and if I'm committed, then I can't get away. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's like the, the point I'm trying to make is it can feel really convincing. Like, oh, it really is because she's not adventurous when really it's like, no, no, it's about being scared of something. And that's the deeper layer that we're looking for of like, yeah. and what you're saying is sort of like, be aware of the patterns that you tend to run and start to get clear on like, is it that she's not adventurous? Like, let me, let me go one deeper. Like, what if we did get into a relationship and then you'll feel that like 
fear in your stomach of like, oh God, what if I disappoint her? And then she punishes me. Like, mm-hmm. that's what you're really afraid of. There's something yeah. else happening under the surface. And what you're, what I'm hearing is you really want to know what that thing is under the surface. So you're talking about the real thing and you want to know what is that surface thing that I do? Like, is it criticizing? Is it, you know, I know another guy who like leaves the room when there's mm-hmm. t- in his relationship, like he just leaves mm-hmm. the room. That's mm-hmm. probably an avoidant strategy. Like, I mean, that's oh, a absolutely. one, but yeah. like, Oh, I do this thing where I leave the room. Like, okay, what are you, what are you scared of? Like, that's a, that's like you said, like a tell. Absolutely. And you know, one thing that I'll say about, you know, she's not adventurous enough for me or sort of coming up with something, you know, that, that sort of, I don't know, it's like a character or kind of a, you know, something that, that they, they're convincing themselves like, oh, it's not a good match for me. It is, it is really important to know what you really need and want in a relationship and what, what are the things that are most important? Because for some people, like I do have some clients that, you know, their lifestyle is organized, for example, around, you know, being outdoors and like they want to live their life that way. They actually want a partner who, who lives their life that way with them because that's how he lives his life. But there are some people, right, that, that like, that's just, okay, it's a nice to have. Like, I like to go on beach vacations. You like to go on mountain vacations. Okay, like we can find a way to make this work, right? Um, so so getting, getting really clear with yourself what does actually really matter is important because that's, that's when people play tricks with themselves. They're like, oh, well, this really does matter. And then, you know, that laundry, that list is like so long. When that list is really long, you know that there's, there's some avoidant strategy going on. Yeah, that's, I think, honestly, I think that's the tricky part of yes. attachment stuff is, you know, that question that we started with of like, what do you do if you're not sure she's the one? Well, some of the time she's not the one, right? Yes. Like some of the time she's genuinely not the right match and, it, and she's that's right. the one. But some of the time it's about attachment. And that's Absolutely. like what we want to, um, why we want to help everyone to move towards secure attachment because you know, the more we have secure attachment, the easier it is to tell that it's about fit. Instead Absolutely. Of about, right. About, yes. Yes. Right. Yes. And right. So the ne- right. So the next thing related to this that I'm, that, you know, that you're going to be doing in therapy, that if you're not going to be in therapy, you know, it, it's, it's work is learning about your feelings, needs, and wants, because there's no way for you to have a successful secure a healthy relationship if you don't know what you're feeling and you don't know what you need and you don't know what you want it, it can't happen and and so it's like in that self-awareness and learning more about yourself and what you're feeling that's going to drive these decisions but for a lot of people right it's like um it's like going to the gym you know they'll they'll go to the gym and they'll work out with a trainer which is why therapy is helpful but like get them to work out on their own it's much harder but but you can't shift your relationship style if you don't know how you're feeling and what you need. Yeah. I'm wondering, do you have an example from uh, one of your clients or an amalgam of your clients of them discovering a need or a want like, Oh wow, I actually need this in relationship. Mm -hmm. Let me think. Well, I mean, you know, so, okay, one thing here is that even if you're a securely attached person, right, 
you, you might be a securely attached person. You, some one person might have, you know, just maybe like slightly less need for contact or communication or togetherness than the other person, right? Like, like how much each person needs in a relationship about like togetherness and separateness is, is something that everybody negotiates. And just because one person needs a little bit more space than the other person doesn't mean that they're avoidantly attached. It just means maybe they're a little more introverted, right. Than the other person. And so, so that was something like, as part of, you know, my question, like, was this person avoidantly attached or are they secure and they just need a little more space than the other person? It helped, you know, giving the person permission. It's like, it's okay if, you know, tonight, you know, you need to just go in your study and read. Like, it's okay. You don't have to be with your partner just because you live with them. You don't have to spend 24 seven with them. Right. So, 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 validating that the need for space is a valid need in a relationship. And it doesn't mean, doesn't always mean you're avoidantly attached. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up, especially shout out to the introverts. Mm-hmm. The introverts in particular need space and time. Yeah. Alone. And yeah. if they don't get it. They often become irritable. Yes. That's my experience with most of the introverts in my life is like, they start to get annoyed and I'm like, Hmm, do you want a night off? Like <laughs> you need a night to just be alone. And they feel very seen because a lot of the time that is, that's what's happening. So just shout out that that can be what that looks like. Um, But so I have a, so I have a, a question slash example of this discovering a need. My friend was dating, my woman friend was dating a guy a while back who, um, when they would have like a, like a conflict. So like something they didn't agree on or whatever it was, um, he wouldn't really be able to talk about it for like five to seven days. Mm -hmm. And, and she was kind of suffering in those five to seven days. And Mm -hmm. so she was like, I, this isn't going to work for me. I, I need a partner that can, that can talk this through because he would really show up well, you know, mm-hmm. after those five to seven days, but mm-hmm. she was like, I, I, this is a need for me. Like I need a partner that I can talk about things with either in real time or within like a day, like a day or two is okay. Beyond that, like it just, it's so uncomfortable for me. It mm-hmm. doesn't feel that safe. Um, would you classify that as an attachment thing or like, like a need? Mm-hmm. Or both? I think that it is, that feels more like a need. Um, I mean, one or two days, you know, doesn't feel like an unreasonable amount of time to sort of sit with something big and then want to be able to talk about it. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely sounds like that person is probably a little bit more on the sort of, you know, the anxious side. I'm not saying this person is anxious, but, you know, kind of the waiting seven days like that, that is a long time. That just, that is a long time. Um, but if you're you're kind of relating in those seven days, so you're relating, but you're not talking about this thing. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And it also, you know, it also depends on like, right. Like sort of how much, how big this thing is to -to day-to-day life, right? Like if it's, if it's kind of this, some long-term thing that's, you know, out in the distance, you know, couples can have lots of time between talking about something, right? Like, like they're going to have kids in two years. It's like, well, you can have lots of space between talking about that. But if it's something that's like happening right now, then, you know, then it's a lot harder to hold it. I don't, and that doesn't have anything to do with attachment. Totally. 
Okay. So in terms of identifying your feelings, your needs, your wants, stuff like that, mm-hmm. uh, is there anything that you'd recommend for ways that especially men in particular can um, practice this or be, be in dialogue with someone around it? I mean, I mean, how would you recommend it if a man wasn't in therapy to get more in touch with his feelings and needs and wants? Yeah. Um, definitely in, in some kind, in relationships of some kind, right? So in any, basically in any relationship, um, there's an opportunity to pay attention to what you're feeling and what you're needing and what you're wanting. Um, you know, self-help groups, I think we talked about, we've talked about this before, but, um, you know, if anybody has any reason to be in a 12 step group of any kind or a smart recovery group or, you know, any kind of support group for, you know, whatever they're kind of up to in life, those are great spaces to practice, you know, expressing yourself and expressing your feelings and, and paying attention. Um, the other thing that we've talked about before is, you know, is mindfulness meditation. I mean, you know, it's mindfulness meditation creates that muscle of self-awareness so you can investigate and, and know more about what you're feeling, what, what triggers you, you know, what's, what's actually going on for you, what you're needing. Um, and, and feelings and needs, they're really related. You know, I feel like people, I mean, men in particular, we're, they're not socialized in our culture to sort of value feelings and pay attention to them, but they're just as important to men as they are to women. And the way that we, all of us figure out what we need and what we want is based on how we're feeling. So, um, and mindfulness meditation you know, if you can create a practice for yourself of just like slowing down and paying attention to, you know, the thoughts and the feelings that are arising and just begin to learn that, you know, you pay attention to your body, you can feel body sensations. That's a place where people often get a sense of what they might be feeling. You know, they feel a tightness in their chest or kind of a sickness in their stomach. Those are, you know, those are bodily clues to what a a feeling that might be there. Yeah. Something I just want to shout out here is loneliness. Mm. A lot of men feel lonely a lot of the time Uh, Mm -hmm. in the U S I have listeners from all over, but I've been looking at a lot of research in the U S in particular and loneliness is a trigger. You know, it might not be obvious. It might not be, you know, like this is an example. For example, if you, something happens at work and you feel criticized, Mm-hmm. it's good to notice what happens in your body. Like my stomach, mm-hmm. you know, my, my heart starts to beat faster, like whatever it is just to start to notice that. And then what is my, what is my, what is the next thing that I do? Like, I want to eat sugar, for example, yeah. right? Yeah. Like whatever yeah. it is, like, it's usually our bodies have developed like ways of soothing ourselves and it's good to just notice what they are for you. Um, Cause if it's a lot of times there's no consciousness around it, it's just the thing happens and then you go do the other thing, right? Like yeah. you're feeling lonely, you eat sugar or you're feeling lonely. Um, you watch Netflix and not in like an, I'm excited about this, but like more like to numb out. Um, yeah. so I just wanted to shout that out as a loneliness as a feeling loneliness is a feeling and it is, um, very prevalent for men. So, um, you know, the more like connection that you can build into your life, the better because yeah. the research is sort of showing like 
loneliness is a real thing. And if you're a man and you're feeling it, you are, you are so not alone, which is terribly ironic. I know, but it's really like kind of epidemic levels. So I just wanted to shout that out in the, since we're talking about feelings. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing that comes up when I think about feelings is that, you know, men don't tend to be socialized in our culture either to be very kind of kind or compassionate to themselves when they're having a hard time. Like they've, you know, we all get it in our culture, but they even more than, than women get kind of like pull, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and tough it out, you know? And, and unfortunately, like, that is not what we need when we're feeling lonely or sad or you know criticized or shameful or any of the you know really painful feelings that we we feel it's like what we we do not need to like pull ourselves up by our bootstraps like we need to experience a sense of like kindness and tenderness and compassion towards ourselves so the other strategy that i'm teaching people in therapy um that that you definitely need in your toolkit if you're going to embark on a quest of, you know, paying attention to your feelings, wants, and needs is being able to do that with an attitude of kindness and compassion. I'm really glad that you spoke to that because I think this is kind of an insidious one. Mm -hmm. Don't sort of talk about enough, but that, yeah, that self-talk, um, when we do feel low is kind of like what helps us or hurts us in terms of like, like if you're already feeling bad and then it feels worse. Yeah, exactly. Like, and then you, and then you're shaming yourself for feeling bad. Like that's, that's not so good. Absolutely. Something I've been, um, I've been telling myself lately is you're going to get better at this. Mm-hmm. So, so for example, like I'm, you know, entrepreneuring and doing all these things. And sometimes I'll be like, oh, I should be better at this. I should know how to do this. Like I should have known how to do this 10 years ago. Why don't I know how to do this? Whatever that kind of thing. And instead of that, I'm like, I'm going to get better than that. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. going to get better at this, which is sort of like calming. Like mm-hmm. I don't need to be perfect. I'm doing my best and I'm going to get better at this. Like this is going to, you know, improve. And I'm sort of more meeting myself where I'm at. And that can even be like in relationship, you know, like I'm going to get better at this. Like if you're a man and you're starting to go out and socialize more and you're approaching not even just women, but just like people, or you're starting to like do social dance. We've been talking about social dance a lot on the podcast lately. And you're, and you're like, well, that didn't work very well. I'm going to get better at this, right? Like this isn't mm-hmm. the, not a black and white I'm perfect or I'm not like perfectionistic thinking for me, that's been really helpful to get out of that. It's sort of like, here's where I am and I'm going to get better at this. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, the way we talk to ourselves is, is the single biggest predictor of depression and anxiety truly. Um, and, and we're so critical of ourselves. So changing that, changing those scripts. I mean, the example that I often give people is, or, you know, to kind of help them get in that space is like, well, okay. So if your friend came to you and said that this had just happened, how would you respond to that friend? And they can often, most of us can come up with some very kind, loving things to say to a friend, very encouraging the way that you just did, you know, like, you're going to get better at this. Like, look what a great job you're doing. Like proud of you for even making the effort. Like we would, we absolutely have that readily available for a friend. And so just remembering that and sort of turning it towards yourself and saying, I'm actually the, you know, I'm, I'm just as valuable as my friend and I can, 
I can receive this from me too. I love that. Yeah, that's a that's yeah. that's a good one of just sort of flipping it around. Like, what would I tell a friend? Yeah, what would you tell a friend if she got criticized at work. Like, first of all, that guy's an asshole. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> whatever it was that you were going to tell that person, you can also help help yourself out there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and let me, I'm, I, one of the things I wanted to do was also kind of recommend, you know, resources and stuff like that. So Kristen Neff, she's got a website called selfcompassion.org. She's got a ton of self-compassion meditations and exercises and just different sort of th- tools for self-compassion. She's got a great book. So she's a great resource. And then for mindfulness meditation, so many apps out there. I mean, I'm sure you've got your mindfulness meditation recommendations. I often recommend Headspace. I just think that it's a really good basic you know, basic intro to mindfulness meditation. So um, for those of, you know, those listeners who haven't heard about Headspace, I, I think it's a good one. Yeah. And if you've been wanting to do a meditation practice for a while, I, I would recommend one of the apps because um, I like Headspace. I think that's, that one's, mm-hmm. that one's good. Um, Calm is another one. Mm-hmm. But what's nice about them is you don't have to meditate for very long, right? No. Like 12 to 15 minutes is great to start. And, um, they're kind of fun because they'll record when you meditate, it'll record, uh, the days that you've done it. So you can make, see you're on like a seven day streak and stuff like that. And, um, calm, I know gives you like a nice quote at the end of your meditation. Yep. It's kind of fun. Yeah. 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 And I recommend the apps because, you know, just trying to sit down by yourself and do something like meditation, it's really hard. And, you know, going back to the sort of, you know, having an attitude and a approach of compassion, like be, go easy on yourself. Like you're switching from, you know, trying to transform from an insecure to a secure attachment. It takes work and effort. And, you know, if you were going into a therapist, you'd be going into a space with a lot of care and compassion. And so you've got to do things with that attitude and, and having some help with a, with an app that sort of gives you the guided meditations, that's just going to make your life easier. It's going to make the, you know, the, the work that you have to do easier. Yeah. That's the other thing I'd say about, uh, for me in my mindfulness practice, et cetera, I look at it kind of like going to the gym. So look at myself as a failure because I didn't meditate every single day, or I can say, you know what? I hit three or four days out of the week. That's pretty good. So Absolutely. It's not making it like if, if you're going to start a meditation practice, you have to do it every single day. Mm-hmm. Like, no. don't do that. Just don't it's do that. Like going to the gym, like you, you go the number of days of the week that you can more is better. Every day that you do it is good. Like doing something is better than is nothing. good. Absolutely. <laughs> right. exactly. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Uh, I, yeah. That's a good yeah. One of the, so another one of the things that I've started recommending to people that's that is deeply related to you know what you would do in therapy, but trying to find ways that you could do this outside of therapy and not be in it is is it's changing your narrative. So the attachment research really shows that that one of the things that that people come out of therapy with is a changed narrative of their childhood experiences. And that changed narrative is directly related to having a more secure attachment. And so um, I found an online course with Dan Siegel, who's this incredible, you know, he's an incredible, um, uh, I think he's a psychiatrist. 
in the sort of mindfulness space. It's with Daniel Siegel and Lisa Firestone, and it's called Making Sense of Your Life. It's it's $79. It's an online course. And it's basically, you know, they take you through tools and exercises to rewrite your narrative, to basically rewrite your attachment narrative, which I think, gosh, for $80, that is a huge deal. Again, you know, we're, I'm giving strategies that are, you know, what you do outside of therapy. And so it's, you know, it would take work and discipline and effort, but um, it's an incredible tool. And again, I'll give the, I'll give the website information to Melanie. Yeah. I'm curious in your practice with your clients, like what would be an example of someone who had rewritten their narrative? Yeah. I mean, an example might be, you know, somebody who comes in talking about their mother and how, what a bitch she is and sort of how mean she is and how, you know, rageful and cruel she is. And, and, and just sort of being kind of stuck in that space of like, that's what my mom did to me. I'm, you know, I'm sort of the victim of what my mom did to me. Right. Those are all terrible things that, that would happen to a child. I'm not, I don't mean to diminish that in any way, shape or form, but if that's the mindset that somebody has about that, they're still sort of stuck. They're still locked in a, in an old pattern with that parent. And so, you know, a shift might be, you know, somebody who's moved to a secure attachment is going to be able to say, you know, talk about, talk about what happened, talk about the fact that, you know, growing up mom, my mom was really quite harsh with me. She could be really critical and controlling and, you know, I had a hard time with it a lot. And, you know, what I've come to learn is when I think about my mom, you know, how little emotional support she had growing up and, you know, at some level she was really, she actually made some improvements from the home that she was raised in to, to how she was with me. And, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not condoning it. I'm not saying like, oh, it's, it's fine that she was so cruel to me, but I really understand what was happening for my mother and, and how it got to be that she, you know, neglected me and sort of mistreated me that way. So you, you, know, you can just sort of see the difference in the, the, the security of the latter versus the former. Yeah. It feels like shifting from the identity of being a victim to yeah. the identity of being a kind of like mature adult who recognizes yeah. like that behavior was not okay. And it mm-hmm. left a lasting impact on me and this person was doing their best. Yes. So it's a more holistic, like a yes. And not yeah. like excusing it. Like, Oh yeah, it was totally fine. You know, she was doing her best. It was great. It wasn't great. It was damaging. No. And you know, this is what, this is what's so, and this is where, this is where we are. Yeah. So, like, I can't believe that happened. Like I'm depressed because of her, et cetera. I'm curious as a therapist, um, do you, do you often find that that's where people start from? Because I sometimes, and I have a lot of friends who are therapists. Some people will come and be like, oh yeah, my child was fine. It was totally great. Oh yeah. No, 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 no. I don't No, People are not usually start there. Yeah. No, right. that's exactly no. where people usually start. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. No, it was great. It was, it was fine. Mm-hmm. And, and then like, right, I, which is, which isn't a narrative at all. Right. <laughs> There's no narrative there. Right. Right. that's a good point there there is no narrative there's no narrative right it's like, oh it's fine they're great it's like mm, yeah there's that there, there's no story at all <laughs> do you do you I mean this is going to be a really obvious question but do you find that that's a red flag if a client's like oh it's fine I wouldn't I, I wouldn't call it a red flag but I what I would say is that it's a it's a signal to me that we that, you know, that we probably have a lot of work to do. Yeah. 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 
Okay. So, um, we're going to start to wrap up, but I want to come yeah. back to the question that we started with. What do you do if you're not sure she's the one, if you're a man and you're not sure she's the one, like, what would you say as a therapist are a couple of questions to ask or a couple of reflections to do to try to tell the difference between like, is she really not the one or is this an attachment thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is, yeah. Um, I think that, I think one of the biggest things to ask is what percentage of the time in your relationship are you, you know, are you happy? Um, like, are you happy? Is it positive? Is it, you know, yeah. Are you happy? Um, because I do think that there's something about, and then uh, when, when things are not going well, how often is that because you're in a sort of like doubtful, critical place? Yeah, those are both great. I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking in particular of a client that I had where um, he knew that he had some avoidant um, traits. Yeah. And one of them, which we didn't touch on a lot, um, was he would often attract uh, women that were in relationships already mm-hmm. and they were cheating on their man with this person with mm-hmm. him and and that can be an avoidance strategy right because then you don't you don't have to commit to this person they're absolutely relationship right so they can show up in a number of ways anyway um you know we we worked together and um at some point he was dating this woman and he was having this question of like, I don't know, like, I, I'm not sure she's the one, I don't know. I feel like she's not, but I know I have avoidant tendencies. So how do I tell? Right. And so it was a really interesting dynamic. And ultimately, um, you know, I was, we were kind of holding, holding him in this and supporting him through it. And it, and it felt to me like, I think she might just not be the one, right? Like their senses of humor didn't overlap. That was a huge deal like right there, like, you know, the, that, that thing you said, what percentage of the time are you happy? Like mm-hmm. when he would describe other relationships he'd been in where he was having a really good time, laughing was a big part, right. And having mm-hmm. a shared sense of humor. I mean, that's such a big part of a relationship. Right. And there were a few mm-hmm. things where ultimately it felt like, yeah, this is just not the right fit, but he was in conversation with himself around like, is it that, or is it, is it me trying to distance myself from intimacy. So there was a lot of awareness around it. And Mm -hmm. now he's dating someone he's genuinely excited about and Mm -hmm. he still gets scared. There's still fear. There's still all of the same things, but they're kind of like within the realm of, of like, I can talk about this with my person. We do talk about it. I'm Mm -hmm. aware of it, et cetera. It's so much more conscious than those relationships in the past. And he's Mm -hmm. much happier um, with that. So the two that you said were, what percentage of the time are you happy in this relationship? Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. remind me of the second one. And then the, of the times when you're not happy, how, like, do you see any of your deactivating strategies at work? Yeah. So are you being critical or are you being yeah. kind of cold or withdrawn or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and because, because sometimes, you know, sometimes, if there's a, if there's a kind of anxious avoidant cycle going on and the avoidant person is having feelings or needs that they're not present to and they withdraw and then the anxious person starts to pursue and then they get in a fight, right? So it's like, 
if that's what, if, you know, if those are the times that things aren't happy, well, then, then you avoidant person have some work to do in identifying your feelings, identifying your needs, being able to presence them and speak to them more in your partnership so that you guys aren't getting in that cycle of fights. But yeah. that's a, that's a, that's a classic one I see. It's like, oh, we're fighting all the time. It's like, hmm, why are you fighting all the time? Are you fighting all the time? Because you're not speaking up for your feelings and your needs and you're doing, you know, you're expressing it through your avoidant, you know, deactivating strategies and you're withdrawing and then she's pursuing. This reminds me of when I was a child and I, my, my sister and I got into a fight and, um, my mom asked me what happened. And I was like, Kenda bit me. And my mom was like, and what happened right before Kenda bit me? <laughs> I was like, I hit her. And she was like, well, yeah, like, there's some cause and effect there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Exactly. So we're going to have to wrap up, but, um, can you just real quick, um, Tell people where they can find you if they're interested in working with you. And then a just general quick shout out to therapy and couples therapy. Okay, go ahead. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I'm in San Francisco and my website is www.drlauracaspertherapysf.com. That'll be on that'll be on the podcast site as well. Um, and phone number is 415-734-1969. Um, would be happy to hear from anybody. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That wraps up another episode of Dear Men. Thank you for listening. If you want to reach out, we would love to hear from you. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Dear Men Podcast. That's at Dear Men Podcast. Or Facebook, we have a group, Dear Men Podcast. We also have an email address, dearmenpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to join the Big Sexy Dataset, the community of people who regularly respond to the surveys that we talk about on this podcast, just email us at that address, dearmenpodcast at gmail.com, and we will set you up. Have a sexy day.